0: Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com Elite. The BTE Black Friday sale is back with 20% off of virtually all BTE products. Browse their selections now so you're ready to take advantage of the best prices on torque converters and transmissions. Luke Bogacki Motorsports is taking Black Friday orders now. Orders will ship shortly after Thanksgiving. Take advantage by visiting thisisbracketracing.com/backslash/parts and enter the promo code BTE Black Friday. It's back! The fifth annual This Is Bracket Racing off-season practice tree challenge returns. We kick it off December second. It is free to join within the challenge, which will go for two weeks. We will have daily instruction, I guess you would call it. It's basically myself, my co-instructors within This Is Bracket Racing Elite. That's Justin Lamb and Kevin Brannan, as well as a guest appearance from 2019 NHRA Stock Eliminator World Champion, freshly crowned world champion, Alison Dahl. In each of the daily presentations... One of us will be detailing one of our own personal practice exercises and techniques. And within that, uh, we will challenge you to participate in the same exercise and share your results with the community. So it's an opportunity to learn, it's an opportunity to improve in the off season, and it's an opportunity to have a little fun. Join again, it is completely 100% free join at thisisbracketracingcom slash practice again that is this is slash practice to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed, where we sometimes discuss Cole Castile and Johnny Bracket Racer. But not this week. In fact, I'm solo this week. Uh, no Big Jed, he will be back next week on next week's episode. Um, first off, uh, happy Thanksgiving. Those of you listening, uh, preceding or following the holiday, uh, we have a lot to be thankful for. And that actually comes up in today's uh, conversation at various points. Today's uh, discussion here on the podcast is a good one. I I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. My guest is John de Bartolomeo. And for most of you, that is a name uh, familiar uh, with all walks of drag racing. I wanted to have John on the show for a variety of reasons, but mainly for perspective. His perspective is unique because his experience is vast. John de Bartolomeo has been doing this at a high level for nearly five decades, okay? His career as a driver uh, includes, what, seven national event victories in super stock, super comp, super gas. It includes uh, a victory at the first ever NHRA division finals. I don't even think it was called the division finals. It, It is the event that ultimately became the NHRA ET finals. That win was in 1976 in York, Pennsylvania. John DeBarleméo has been winning at a high level ever since. He won a national event just last year at Superstock at Norwalk, was runner-up in Reading a week later. Uh, He's still doing it at a high level. But his experience, his perspective, it transcends the driver's seat. Uh, You probably know John as the editorial director for Drag Racing Edge magazine. Um, You see him at a lot of the big events. If he's not racing, he's working the event as a journalist. He works the flings. He works the World Footbreak Challenge. He works several NHRA events as well. And he's also the longtime owner, founder of DRC Race Products. So here is a man with nearly five decades of experience behind the wheel, uh, competing within our sport as a journalist, covering our sport, as a business owner working within our sport, and I love having that perspective on the show, just to some the people that can look at our at our sport and the intricacies of it from multiple angles and provide some perspective, uh, some value to us. Uh, and John doesn't disappoint. Um, at this point, I'll shut up and just get to this incredible interview with John debart
1: It's time for The Big
0: Interview on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jen. All right, John D., what is up? Oh, how are you, sir? Doing wonderful, man. Thank you for joining us here on the podcast.
1: No, I appreciate you, uh, you making any offer to me. I, 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 like, I guess I like talking
0: about drag racing we
1: all do right Yeah, <laughs> no doubt uh, but uh, so it's 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 been a it's been a ride sometimes i think i i say i but a lot of people sometimes i think we've been doing it for so long that we kind of get hated we get and dan fletcher said this to me a while ago he says you know so we get like that old man sitting on a porch you know at the kids get off my grass you know and
0: Sometimes I think like that. <laughs> no, it's true. It's funny you bring up Fletcher. He and I had a really good conversation uh, at, uh, at Vegas after the spring fling this year, just about kind of keeping things in perspective and, and how, how fortunate we are to be able to go do this. And you think of Fletcher like you think of the sometimes, you know, the, the pessimist and the, the get off my lawn. But it was really good for me to hear that from him, you know?
1: Yeah, uh, like I said, we've been doing this a long time and I think that, you know, I, I used to say, and maybe I still say it to a to a point right now. I used to say that we saw the really good times, I think, in drag racing, and and maybe today it's it's just a it's different. It's not that today's any worse than what it was, you know, twenty, thirty, forty years ago when I started. But it's just it's just different, and I think we have to look at it from a different perspective. We tend to sometimes look at the bad. And when you really think about it, there really is a lot of good to it. I just wrote my blog for this week, uh, this morning, and, you know, I talked about this week being Thanksgiving. Uh, and, and we really need to be thankful for what we got. Uh, and sometimes we're not, me included. We, we sometimes look at the bad part of things and, and instead of looking at the good.
0: No, a hundred percent. I actually, uh, there was a post on, uh, on Twitter recently. I saw one of the, one of the younger generations saying, man, I wish I could go back and, and to the days of, you know, the, the B and M series and the, the things that the racers of my age talk about as kind of the quote unquote glory days. And my response was, yeah, I mean, that was awesome. But, uh, 15 years from now, we'll probably look back on what's happening right now as the quote unquote glory days too, you know? So <laughs> keeping that perspective, That's honestly done. That's why I wanted to have you on the show. And I know we, I talked about it a little bit in the intro, but it's just, I feel like your perspective is really unique, not only in having been so deeply involved in the sport for as long as you have, but also from the the various hats that you have worn and continue to wear within the sport as a successful driver, as a journalist, as a business owner, like you've just seen this from a variety of different angles. And I know one of your original, you know, claims to fame as a racer was winning the, the first ever division ET finals um, back in 1976. So my, my opening question for you is, if I could have told you, or someone could have told you in 1976, or, or obviously that wasn't your first year of racing, but told you early on about today's world of sportsman drag racing, what about the sport today would have shocked you the most? 40-plus years ago?
1: That's a really good question. Um, what would have shocked me? I really don't know. I guess the fact of, you know, 40 years ago, I mean, when I started racing, like a lot of us, we could conceivably think that one day we would be in a pro car, pro stock or fuel or whatever. If you're a good driver, you got noticed. Today, that doesn't happen. You know, obviously we have some racers, some drivers who have made the the step up, graduated up, Eric Anders, Langdon, those types of people. But for the most part, I think that your everyday person can't make that step. If they don't have any money behind them or contacts, they're not being a good driver, and, and this happens in all in all forms of motorsports. Being a good driver doesn't get you anything anymore. So maybe if if there was one thing that would shock me, maybe that's it. But then again, back to today, and somebody told you what was gonna happen 15, 20, 30 years in the future, what would you be shocked at? I don't know. Um, you know. Nobody's got a crystal ball. Nobody knows what's gonna happen back 30, 40 years ago, we didn't think, we probably didn't even think that the sport was gonna end up to be as big as it really is. I really believe, and I've written this before, that drag racing has taken on a life of its own. That the NHRA, Wally Parks and crew, they need to be commended and and congratulated for bringing drag racing into what we have today. But if they, and I say they, NHRA, PDRA, whoever, if they were to go out of business tomorrow, you'd still have drag racing at, I mean, I live next door to Beaver Springs Dragway. So you'd still have racing at Beaver Springs. You'd have Maple Grove. You know, know, in your case, you'd have the tracks out there. Drag racing would still survive. You know, back then when we started, NHRA was the biggest. NHRA was this, this. Everybody had to go NHRA, you know they don't necessarily have to, nor do they think that they need to today
0: You mentioned your your blog earlier, and uh that was another part of the reason that I have you on just i I love going down some of the rabbit holes that you go down and specific to to what a, what seems to apply to to me and to our audience, like the bracket racing and its current direction and the state of big dollar racing. I know that you get an opportunity not only to compete but also to cover some of the biggest events in the country and uh, Forget 40 years ago, like 10 years ago, would you have ever dreamed all the way across the board that the, that we'd be racing for the purses that we're racing for, that there would be so much money involved in the sport that the level of competition and parity would get to the point that it is today. Like all of it just, it's been a a constant progression, I guess, and year by year, I guess it's, it's easy to see how one builds upon the other, but you think back to, in my case, just 10, 15 years ago, I could have never predicted where we're at.
1: No, no, there's no way. I mean, I, I went to the first, I forget what, they, what the official name was, the first U.S. cash nationals or whatever Ron Lee held at Byron Dragway back in early to mid-70s, whenever that was. And I think we were racing for $5,000 to win. And, and, you know, back then, I mean, that was totally unheard of. You didn't, I mean, $5,000, you gotta be kidding me. And now when racers like think probably myself included, when we see a $5,000 win race, you know, we kind of have second guesses. We're not going probably, you know. But yet everybody's flocking to these 50s and 20s and 500s and millions. But I don't know that that's healthy for the sport. I just have a question in that people are now, years ago, when when we started in NHRA racing, or we started in the mid-70s, let's say, you had people who were going to their local tracks each and every week. And they were racing because this is what they ran on a weekly basis. They ran super stock and modified and stock eliminator and junior stock and so on. And then all of a sudden NHRA opened the doors to their WCS meets, which were World Championship Series races back in whenever. And now all of a sudden guys decided, you know what? I don't want to go to Podunk Dragway. And race there now this weekend because next week I can go to the WCS meet at English Town or or wherever and I can get all this glory and not necessarily money, but I can get this
0: glory. What was the initial draw to that? The the prestige, the The professionalism?
1: The prestige. Mm -hmm. You had the prestige. That's why people went. So then what happened is they stopped going to Podunk Dragway. And when they stopped doing that, Podunk Dragway right now all of a sudden started losing money. Operator couldn't stay in business. In comes bracket racing. So now bracket racing, he guys were, wanted to bracket race and, and he would make out okay. And that's how bracket racing really grew to where it is today. The downside to it is that in the very beginning, and I was around, obviously I won the very first bracket finals. But I was kind of around when that whole thing was being formulated, and the track operators didn't know what to do. NHRA wanted to bring drag racing, bring bracket racing into their point races. Well, the track operators flipped because they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I use the word stole, but I don't mean steal. You guys stole our super stock and comp races and modified racers. Now you want to steal our bracket races. It's the only way we can make any money. That's how the first bracket finals came about, because a man by the name of Charlie Cattell, who still owns US 13 Dragway in Maryland, he also owned a circle track, a dirt track. And I guess he had known that part of the idea of the circle track was that guys would go and race that dirt track each and every week, and then they would qualify for the end of the year to go to... Syracuse or whatever, a race, a big race. So all the track operators got together and said, hey, that's a pretty good idea. Let's do this. That's how the bracket finals was formulated. Now flash forward 40 years or so, and you've got all these big time bracket races, these 50,000s and 20s and 500s and whatever. And, and guys are starting to look at that and say, well, you know what? Why should I go to Podunk Dragway this weekend and race for $1,000 to win? When I can save my money and go to Kyle and Peter's Spring Flames or uh, Kyle Riley's SFG, whatever. So I think part of that is that they're starting to shy away from going to the Podunk Dragway on a weekend. And, and you know, as I said, I live next door to Beaver Springs and I've known the owner. We have a new owner there. This is his second full year of owning it. But I've known the previous owner, the guy who built the track, Beaver Bob. 40-plus years. He was one of the original guys to get involved and get that bracket finals going. And Mike Lewis from Maple Grove, Charlie Cattell, I forget whoever else. But in any event, you know, and so being as close as I am to that racetrack and being as close as I am to to the owners, both of them now, the previous owner and the new owner, Mike McCracken, I can see where they're starting to lose cars on a weekly basis. And i'm not going to blame it on spring flames or the sfds i I certainly would never downplay them but i think that they have something to do with with what we're losing on on a normal basis now is that good for the sport it's a good question i don't know
0: it's interesting because there's a lot of parallels and I've, i've thought about this and been told this before but obviously like someone with your experience it's It's interesting to think about the parallels from that stock, super stock modified days, all going NHRA racing, bracket racing comes in to save the day for the local tracks. Now, however many years later, we're basically going down the same road with bracket racing, only now it's not NHRA, it's these, these bigger events. And I mean, we can't look into the crystal ball like we talked about earlier, but does something come in to save the day for the local tracks or is there some type of compromise model? Like where do you see this whole thing going in the next decade, two decades?
1: I don't really know. You know, a couple of years ago I was speaking with Ron Lee, who passed away, I guess. He passed away this year, I think, I believe.
0: Yeah, just recently.
1: Uh, yeah. But I was speaking with him a couple of years ago and he said to me, told me that they ran eight points races, eight bracket racing points races a year. And I said, only eight? And he says, yeah, but they're two-day events. He said, so they're Saturday and Sunday. He said, so really, he said, there's 16 a year, but only on eight weekends. And knowing what it takes to run a racetrack, I said to him, how do you make it any other time? And he said, test and tune, baby. He said, that's where the money is. And it is. There are times when next door here, he'll have 60 cars testing and tuning on a Saturday. You know, no payout, nobody complains. These guys just come out. They just want to go fast with their cars. I don't know where we're going. I really don't. You know, we look back to that crystal ball and it, it doesn't say anything in there.
0: That's what scares me, I think, about bracket racing in general is just the idea. Because just like you, I have a really close relationship with our local track. We put on an event there each year and the owners of it. And obviously, if if you or I operated a, a drag strip, John, like we're bracket racers, that would be part of the program. But if you didn't have our history as a track owner, I don't know why you'd even mess with bracket racing. You know what I mean? Like, it's mm-hmm. it's not super profitable. It's a lot of work. It's the only event that you have that entails a payout. And for the most part, like, everything has to be perfect. You know, we're racers. We're going to complain about insufficient track conditions. We're going to complain about timing system not being perfect, whereas the, the everyday test and tuner doesn't care,
1: you know? They, don't, they just, they don't care. And, and, you know, like you said, if sometimes I think that, that track owners could be a track owner today, it takes a lot of guts. We have this, our track here just got sold two years ago, as I mentioned, and the new owner, Mike McCracken is doing a great job, but he's a racer. He got into this, started owning the track because he wanted to see what he could do. But it's very hard to sell a racetrack these days. Beaver Bob who owned the track and built the track. A couple of years ago, I got asked a question. The Division One director, Dave Moon, called me up, and he said, is it true? What's true? And he said, is Beaver, Spring, Beaver Springs for sale? And I said, the only thing that I could tell him was, it's always for sale. If somebody comes up with the right money, and, and fortunately for Beaver Bob, he, somebody came up with the right money. But, I mean, we, I can tell you that it's a, It's a tough operation. It's not. When I I moved here in 2003, and I didn't move to be next door to the racetrack. We just happened to find a piece of property that was, this is it. This is ideal. Let's buy it. But in any event, living, I mean, there's times on it. This is how close I am. I mean, I don't even, if I go there to test, I won't even move my truck and trailer. I'll just drive my car right down the street and, and come in the front gate. But in any event, the first six months, I'd go there and just hang out. And I'd be sitting in the car, and I remember coming home at, at night, and I'd say to my wife, I've got to be missing something. There, there's something – this looks too easy to make money. I, I just – I could see how much money – I mean, obviously, I didn't see how much money he's making. But just the thought of it was just this looked too easy. And then about six months into the year, 2003 season, he started having issues, weather, races started complaining. He had problems with the noise with the township. And I went home that night and I said to aha, uh-huh. I see what I'm missing. And it's not an easy, it's definitely not an easy task. I think that if you asked any track operator, they'd tell you the same thing, that it's not easy at all. The guys who have been in it a long time, is Steve Earwoods, the the Bader's, they still have the same problems, but they do have, they got experience behind them. So they got that running start. I've always said to the new owner here, Mike, you know, the same thing. Mike, listen, guys like Bader and those guys, they're having the same problems that you have. Last year was a miserable year for weather. I don't know how how many days he lost from rain, but the only question I said to him was that, you know, those other guys, they've got experience. They know how to handle it. You don't have that experience in it. Um, I just hope that you're going to be okay. And, and he, he assured me he was, and, and he is. But, you know, think about what happened at Norwalk for the national event this year, where Vader had to call off the, the sportsman racers and send them all home and send all the campers home Think of how much money he lost on that one event, you know, so it's, it's definitely not an easy task. And and where are we going in this sport? God only knows truly.
0: With that in mind, and you talk about the, the challenges and the struggles of, of being a track owner or operator, like what type of advice could you impart to the racer listening outside of just simply having a little bit of empathy and patience with the local track promoter, but, I I think the point or my takeaway from this is specific to bracket racing. Like most tracks probably don't have to do it. So I I feel like as a racer, just having an open ear and an open mind and working with being willing to work with your track owner is about the best that we could do. No. And not just telling them, Hey, this is the way it's supposed to be from our limited perspective as a racer. But actually working together to make a mutually beneficial program.
1: No, I I think you need to look at at both sides of the fence. You know, as you've mentioned already that I've been fortunate to be on both sides of the fence, so I guess I can see what happens all too often and, and not with all due respect to races. Sometimes they don't tend to look at the other side and see just what, what happens and see how hard it is. You know we go to a track and and we complain because the timing system, because we don't get three thirty elapsed times and and we get all upset, but we don't know that the track owner has tried his best to to fix the problem and hasn't been able to. And so he does the best that he can with what he's got to work with. Sometimes it doesn't satisfy racers and 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 that becomes a problem. I don't think a lot of racers are businessmen in their own right, and i and I think that they understand. Um, but sometimes, sometimes we don't look at it that way. And and I'm probably just as guilty as anyone else. I mean, I've probably been to racetracks myself where, you know, I see something going wrong and I think the track owner ought to do this or do that. And he sees it from a different uh,
0: aspect. Yeah. No, I think guilty of that too. A couple of threads that I want to pull on just from conversation so far, you talked about how, Years ago, the the ceiling or the goal was, if you proved yourself in a sportsman car and had great success, like there was at least the seed, the hope that you could develop into the pro ranks. And you say that that's I agree with you that that doesn't doesn't feel realistic for most of us these days. With that in mind, you start out at your local bracket track, have success. Like, what is the ceiling for today's sportsman drag racer?
1: I think the ceiling is is where we put it. I don't think that we, I know that we can't expect, or most racers can't expect to jump into a pro car. That that to me, that ceiling's gone, or at least that ceiling's been raised way too far. You know, this is something that we've tried to do with our magazine in that, and, and maybe me coming from the bracket racing standpoint world, so to speak, I think that the bracket racers do not get the notoriety that they deserve, there's some, as you well know, there are some really good drivers out there, really good. you know we interviewed I forget who it was, a fuel car driver for a story we did a while back and and he said to me that he truly believed that you can take any good bracket racer and stick them in a fuel car. And he will get acclimated to it very quickly. But there are probably top fuel drivers that, if you put them in a bracket car, they would be lost. Bracket racers, as you will know, like I said, you are, are good. There's there's some good drivers out there. Where can they go? Where's the ceiling? Where what can they attain to, or what can they try to attain? That's a, that's a good question. I, I don't think that can go too much further. They can win the million dollar race. They can win the five hundred thousand dollar races. They can win the twenties and the thirties and the fives and the tens. But as far as going any further than that, I, I that's a good, that's a very good question. I think it's very hard to, to do that to go anywhere.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree. Circling back now to to um, the the proliferation of all of these big dollar events and the impact that it's had on you know quote unquote local drag racing, or what do you call it? Podunk Dragway, right? This is something Jed and I have discussed numerous times on the show. And I guess my argument would be, like, is it the cause or the effect? Because I think you could make the argument that this advent of all the big dollar events has cannibalized local bracket racing. I think you could also make the reverse argument that we've allowed the costs of competition to get so far out of hand that the average local bracket race didn't really meet the need that it did 20 30 years ago as we've gotten so much more cost involved we look for different ways to offset that and the big dollar scene has kind of filled that void so you can make the argument the big dollar races have cannibalized local racing i think you can make the argument that local racing was Dying anyway, and this just filled the void. Like, I don't really know what the right answer is. And it's probably a mixture of both. Anything, any thoughts along those lines?
1: I guess the question would be what are we really racing for? Are we racing for the money or the trophy?
0: Uh, you know, do you feel like that's changed? Yeah, somewhere
1: along the line, we were racing for trophies and we were fine and we were happy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then I remember years ago, one of the tracks that we raced at came up with this idea, ten dollars for the trophy. Well, we had a million of these plastic trophies anymore. What do I need more of these plastic trophies for? So give me the ten bucks. I want the ten bucks. Okay. Next thing you know, they're paying 50 bucks to win it to track the next town over or whatever. So we go over there. And and you know, somewhere along the line somebody paid ten thousand or five thousand dollars. Ron Lee paid five thousand dollars to win. Now all of a sudden come the mid eighties Early 80s, Dick Moroso has his five-day bracket challenge, and he pays $5,000 to win. So we all talk down there. It, it's it's a very good question. I mean, are we racing for the money, or are we racing for the trophy? For me, personally, this is my business. This is what I do to make a living. This is how I put food on the table, just like yourself. So I don't necessarily, and maybe I'm jaded because I've got the trophies, I don't need to race for a trophy. So I tend to have to look at the money aspect of it. But again, for most people, why, why do we race? That's a big question. It's a really big question.
0: One of the uh, the topics of one of your recent blogs, and I think this goes in as the, the stakes continue to get raised across the board, but particularly when... Purses go up and everything involved with racing goes up. Entry fees go up, that the cost of racing in general, the stakes get raised as a whole. And I think it's common or it, it, I think it would be crazy if we didn't at least cross our mind occasionally that, hey, for this type of prize, is everyone on the up and up? Like, Is there, is there cheating going on in our sport? Not only the, the, the re- increased stakes, but the increased technology that, to be quite frank, myself included, most of us don't understand, you know, like even what's possible and what could be done. Like, are we naive to think that there is not cheating within ra- racing at those levels, or do you think that that thought process is a little bit overblown?
1: I think I think it's overblown. I, there's people probably cheating. I, I saw an interesting video not too long ago, and maybe it was an old video, and and Ray Abraham from NASCAR or. NASCAR racing anyway, he he had a, a video where he interviewed some old racers. I say old racers, but race guys have been doing it for a long time. And, and one of the topics of the video was, what did you do back then to cross the line? He didn't say cheat, but it was, what did you do to cross the line? And, and to a point, I think we all tend to cross the line sometimes. But I don't think it's as rapid as, as people think it is. I don't think there's – if there's people cheating, I, I don't know what they could be doing. You and I both know. I mean, we've seen all these big events. We, we have this product in our car and that product, and we've seen what's for sale out there. But I don't know what else could be done. You know, we always talked about photocell that could look at the light – shine on the tree and release the trans break when it saw the the yellow light or the green whatever and and yeah maybe it's possible but i think that what we have today i don't know what could be possible i, I really don't but i don't think that people are cheating like we think they're cheating you know years ago i had a device when super gas started and i'm probably telling about my cheating here but when Super Gas started, pushing the envelope, John. Right, I pushed the envelope. <laughs> we'll call it that. Yeah. When Super Gas started, you couldn't deep stage, which you still can today, but you couldn't get a light. We didn't have the trans brakes that we have today. We didn't have the engine, so on and so forth. You know, this was back in the days when if you were forty and fifty on a tree, that was great. That was good. So what we used to do is we used to roll in a little bit we didn't go deep but we would roll the car so you you pre-stage the car you stage the car and you bump it in one or two bumps but how much is one or two bumps it's very inconsistent and there's there's no no secret to that i found and i don't even remember how i found it but i found that there was this product and it was a photocell that counted ketchup bottles it would count seven or eight or ten ketchup bottles, drop them into a box or a door would shut drop those 10 or whatever into the box the box would move along the door would open up and the next eight or ten would be counted as it went past this little photo cell. well it happened to be 12 volt operated so i got to thinking wow what if we would have just put it in a car so i ended up taking the rear rotor of my car and, and I did it on a on a rotary table on a bridge board, and I drilled a series of maybe quarter inch holes all the way around the outer circumference. Mounted the photo cell there and you would set the box. It was a little control box, you'd set the box, count so many counts. But the problem was that with the ignition systems that we had today that had back then, and even though probably worse than the ones we have today, back then the radio frequency interference with that control box was horrible. So if you set it to count eight holes, you'd roll in and maybe it'd count eight holes. Maybe it would count 10, maybe it'd count 50. You, you just, you couldn't get it. We all tried to push the envelope. There's probably guys today trying to push that same envelope, but what envelope? Where, what do you push? I, I just don't even know. It's amazing. And, and this is something I've talked about. I think, almost think that our cars are more accurate and I'm probably going to catch hell for this from the from Bob Rockmeyer or Allison Dahl or from Porta tree I almost think our cars are more accurate than the timing systems that we race on you know think about this we're timing a car forget to the 10,000th, timing it to a thousandth of a second how do you you can't you can't even begin to blink an eye in a thousand how can you tell me First round at Indianapolis this past year, I was driving my super comp car. My guy is triple zero on the tree, perfect. He goes down there, he's 91.3. I'm 13 right. on the tree, and I get the wind light. It was a dead heat at the finish line. I mean, it took it out to 10,000s, obviously, but it's a dead heat. And All I kept thinking to myself, and I think about this all the time, how much more brake, how much more or, more, or how little brake pedal, pedal pressure would it have taken for me? lose that race we're we're talking thousands of a second how do you even fathom that this happens and and so it gets back to cheating i mean i don't what how can? what do we do today to make these cars even better than they are these cars are you've seen it you've done it yourself we've all done it you go to these big bracket races and you see double low reaction times like they're being spit out of a cannon like they're, they're for free are you kidding me? A guy goes out there and he lays down a fourth diwl pack and he gets killed by some guy laying a two thou, two out pack next to him that That boggles my mind it really does it, it really boggles my mind.
0: Now it's good to hear you say that because you basically articulated the same argument that I've made that a number one with the the legal technology available today like I just don't know how much better you could quote unquote cheat. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's specific to run the dial in. Like maybe there's some room. I I feel like the biggest variable in any form of of our sport is reaction time. Like maybe there's some room room to do something there. But no, I, I I'm with you. And I think by and large that the field is fairly self policing. Like my argument has always been that if there's significant cheating going on, it's at Podunk Dragway where the majority of the field doesn't know any better. Like you come to an event like the fling or the NHRA tour. And if something seems suspect, like it's just going to raise a red flag to the competition. You're like, you know, that guy just went dead on two, And didn't like, even look at me or, you know, he's he got their first by two car lengths, you know, I and mean, things like that happen repeatedly. And, and they everybody, do. yeah,
1: they, they do. And, and you know I mean? You're probably right. If there is any amount of cheating going on, it's probably being done at Codham Driveway. It's not being done at, you know, Maple Grove, Pomona last week or whenever it was, it, it, it's tough. It, it really is. And, and if a guy gets caught doing something, what would they ever find? I, and, and the truth of the matter is, and, and no disrespect to any of the tech guys, I'm not sure that the tech guys even know what they're looking for. You know, they're making an attempt. And yes, we're looking for something. But if we see something out of place, we'll ask questions, and it's up to you obviously to give the right answer, but it's tough. I, I, don't, I don't know how, what you would find. I really don't know what you would find anymore.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And in their defense, like, I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years, and I bet I've wired 50 race cars. Like, I would have to really dig deep and ask a lot of questions. Like, there, I'm sure there's plenty of stuff on there that I don't understand how it works, and it might be completely legal, you know? You know, when
1: you look at the grid ignition systems that we have today – I'm not sure that there's, there's probably somebody, Joe Pando from MSD, but I mean, short of him, I'm not sure that people even understand what those things can do. You know, it's just like the computer you have in your home. I mean, think about what your computer does
0: and what you could be doing with it and who
1: who can figure that out.
0: No, and I think, like specific to the grid, I think that's the cause of a great deal of anxiety among racers because it does have so many functions that I'm sure we're not tapping into. But I don't think any of us really know what could be done with it. We just assume the worst, you know.
1: <laughs> exactly, we do, we do, we do. Racing has just it's gotten maybe not out of hand, but I I'm sure it was a lot simpler. But again, you know, so was life a lot simpler. You know, it's always interesting to me. Both of my parents are gone. But it would be interesting to talk to people from that era and question them as to just the things that they did. You know, you, you asked me earlier about what somebody would tell me or what what would I be shocked about today. And you know, maybe if I were to ask my parents what would they be shocked about today, I, I'm I'm sure that they would be as shocked to see what we have today as, as anyone. So I think it's the same thing in racing. I think that what we have today, I don't know how you could get any much, how you can get any further with what we have today available to us. But I guess at some point in the future, 10, 15, 20 years from now, you know, you and I are going to be looking at this and going, holy cow, you can do that? It's just that, that style, that type. I don't know.
0: In the grand scheme of today's sports and racing market, I think I know where you're going to go here, but it, obviously there's the, there's, there's the money end of the bracket racing. There's the prestige, which I, I still think NHRA probably has the market cornered, although races like the fling, I think do a really good job on both sides. Like how specific to NHRA and the sportsman categories, like the, the financial end of that, there was a time and you know, Fletcher's, what we were talking about earlier, we wanted to tell you that that was a, a financially viable option to go run national events. You could, you know, obviously he won, more of them than anyone. And it paid. And with the, the current contingency format, like those purses have been cut in half. Obviously, that the type of racer, maybe not the type of racer, certainly the number of racers that follows that series is not like it used to be 10, 15 years ago. How do you see it all coexisting going forward from local bracket racing, big dollar bracket racing, the NHRA sportsman tour? Like, Is there truly something for everyone or is it just getting more and more muddled?
1: I think it's getting more muddled. You know, we've got – segregation is definitely not dead. It's as alive as it's ever been. And, you know, we've got so many different classes. We've got the bracket race. We've got the NHR race. We have the PDRA. We have the the ten five cars and so on and so forth. Um, but it kind of gets muddled. 20, 30, 40 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, let's say, we just had drag racing. We just had NHRA style of racing. So you had, I don't know, let's take a number. Let's just say 10,000. You had 10,000 racers all over the country. I still think that we have the 10,000 racers all over the country, but they're not going NHRA racing. They're maybe not going bracket racing. They're going PDRA. They're going 10-5 stuff, Outlaw stuff. So it's getting a little muddled in that that respect. But, it's muddled in a good way. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that sometimes we look at just one series. Let's take bracket racing, for instance, where you know you get 600 cars show up for, a, or 600 entries show up for an event, and we think, well, that's all there is. But that's not all there is. Out of that 600, you know, there's probably another 600 that maybe went outlaw racing at weekend. I think guys are starting to, and I would hope anyway, that guys are starting to look at, and girls, are are starting to look at events as what they were when we started or or for the reason that we started. And the reason we started was to have fun. When you're not having fun NHRA racing, you go someplace else. Every time I go to an NHRA race, be it a divisional or a national event, I... uh, invariably you get a bunch of guys hanging around at night and they're all of a sudden sooner or later the bitching comes around to hra if we can use this term sucks tech parking track whatever timing system you name it okay (laughs) now i go to the big bracket races and you get the same number of guys hanging around at night and their biggest bitch is oh crap we ran out of beer we ran out of propane for the motorhome or for the grill or, or whatever, you know, because they're out there having fun. And sometimes I think that the racers, and no disrespect to any of them that go to the NHR races, but I think that the racers on the NHRA Tour are starting to lose, lose sight of the fun. And, and maybe part of the blame falls in NHRA's lap, that they're not making it fun. You know, when we went to the the, the five and the $10,000 bracket races years ago, the track operator put the money up, and you went there and you raced. You had fun. You won. You lost. Whatever. But now, all of a sudden, along comes Kyle and Peter, and they raised the bar. Now they're having fun. Now guys are wanting to go to this race, and, and not the, not caring whether they want to lose, but they're going there because – and I guess it's the same way with the SFG races – they're going there because they're having fun. They're having a good time. And that's what I think we lose sight of. You know, it's the same question that I posed that I asked earlier. Are we, what are we racing for? We're we racing for the trophy or we're we racing for the money? Racing for the money is tough. Um, most guys who race these days are doing it. And, and the reason they do it is it's their golf game, it's their house on the lake, their boat, whatever. But now, all of a sudden, they're making money, okay? Now, I'm sure that, and I know that there's some some money to be made going off, you know, on the weekend, because you can bet with your buddies, but there ain't no money to be made with that house that you got on the lake or that, that sailboat or or motorboat you got out there in the lake. I mean, motorboats, I think, boats as general, I think are just playing holes in the water that you just keep pumping money into. But now, all of a sudden, racers got this, And it gets back to what we talked about earlier about racers are now looking at it from a money standpoint. But it's not always about the money. It really isn't. My son, when he got out of college, he went, he got a, he did very well. The first college he got out of, anyway, he got offered three jobs immediately. He graduated magna cum laude or whatever the top he was, you know. And and one of them, they were going to pay him a lot of money to go to Kentucky for a job. And I said to him, you know, listen, you, you better think about it because it's not always about the money. No, 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 they're 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 going to pay me a lot of money. I mean, it was, it was signing bonus, moving expenses. It was a it was a pretty big deal. And I said, well, just think about it for a minute. No, 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 the money, the money, the money. And he went there and he was there about four or five months. I remember him calling me up saying, this sucks. And I said, I told you it wasn't always about money, you know. And, and it's the same thing like, you know, when you look at a a five a ten thousand dollar, I keep saying five thousand dollar, that really hates me because that's not even a big race anymore. But with a ten or a twenty or a thirty thousand dollar race, you know, and racers are looking at it and they're going, Wow, yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it is a lot of money. But is the ra- are you gonna go there and have fun? Are you gonna have a good time? And if you lose first and second round when are you going to start making money? When are you, and I don't mean making money, when are you going to start seeing a return?
0: <laughs>
1: so Royce Miller, who owns MIR, or I don't know who owns MIR now, but Royce said to me years ago that he took a $5,000, again, we're dating ourselves, he took a $5,000 to win race years ago, and he reformatted, it was a $100 entry fee, he reformatted the whole payout so that I think you, if you won first round, you got your entry money back. You got $100. So All you needed to do was second round losers, obviously, would get their $100. But what happened was that because of all the restructuring of the money, it only made it $2,000 to win on top. Nobody showed up.
0: And no one supported this race, that's right. Nobody supported the race. You
1: know. So, you know, I mean, we look at these $500,000, million-dollar races now, and, and thankfully we have this thing called the split. So that at least when you get down to X amount of cars, we'll start splitting the money up and you'll start making you'll start taking home some money. I've always said that that a local track operator, if a guy wins, if they could, if a guy wins first round, why don't you give him a pit pass for next week? I don't mean an entry fee, give him a pit pass for his wife for his girlfriend. Give him something. And and I almost think that Colin Peters program is kind of geared towards that
0: yeah just know? by giving so much away
1: we've given so much away you know we're at least giving you something again it gets back to oh, we're racing for the money we're racing for the trophy
0: you know yeah no and to your point like i think that the fun aspect i think there's different types of events and series that appeal to different people at, at in different seasons of life you know what i mean like then I try to even today like it has value for me and my family just because it's a it's a family atmosphere. There's more to do at the event than just race. You know that it's you're rarely going to race at night. You know what I mean? So it's it's and by the same token, I think most everyone loves the idea of competing on a big stage, whether that's a national event or a big dollar bracket race or whatever. Like just that adrenaline rush of I, I call it staging for rounds that matter. Like that's fun to me. And then and, and the big dollar races. I think the community aspect is really fun, but what's not fun too is for most of us. So to, to some, are the, the financial means is fine, but it's not fun to, to ring up a two, three, four thousand dollar tab at the end of the weekend. You know what I mean? So the, all of it's a give and take. And, and to your point, to the typical or average weekly bracket racer, like just the release from work and all the crap of day to day. You know, even if that's just going out for six hours on Saturday night, like that can be fun too.
1: It can, it can. But, I mean, you know, you, you also bring up the aspect of the two and $3,000 tent that you ring up if you're not. You know that when you go to a big bracket race, if you don't start making some rounds, you can go in a hole really quick. Okay. But I think that guys are realizing that. They understand that. But by the same token, they're budgeting for that. You know, they're not going to on Dragway and sure for four weekends because Pono and it's at $60 to enter, let's say, okay, four weekends is, is 240 bucks. but they're going to take that 240 bucks and they're going to put it towards the buyback maybe next weekend. So, I, I don't know where we're going. I wish I had the crystal ball, but I don't and nobody does. You know, I, I know that God willing, tomorrow morning we're going to wake up, the sun's going to shine. The sun always shines tomorrow morning. So, Anything more than that. You know, I've said this, that we don't even know who's going to win next week. I think it's written in a big book someplace. Big man upstairs got this book and he says, I know who's going to win next week. I've already got it in my book. You know, and I've I've kidding around said this, that, and I think I wrote it, but God willing, if I should ever get through the pearly gates there, I'd, I'd like for him to at least show me that book. He told me how many times I wasted my time going to a race that he knew I wasn't going to win, <laughs> but I went anyway. Now, does that mean I don't go? No, it doesn't mean I don't go. It doesn't mean that, that I'm not going to go with the same attitude. I, I go to win. That's why I go. I think we just need to look at it from the aspect of having fun. Let's continue to do what we started to do. We, we went racing because it was fun. Yeah, okay. It's, it's fun to go fast. It's fun to to beat your buddy, but it's also fun to sit there and hang out with your friends. I live next door to Beaver Springs. I've said that a million times. I don't go there and race because I'm usually involved going somewhere else. I'm, I'm traveling to go to another race. And should I get an off weekend? Truth of the matter is, I'm not sure I want to be next door to a racetrack. You know how it is. So. But on an off weekend that I do decide, hey, you know what? We got off next weekend. Let's go. I will usually travel someplace to another racetrack because, and and I'll use the the term, I would go to New Media, which is an hour away from me, because the people who race at New Media are the people that I grew up with. They're my friends. Not that the people at Beaver Springs aren't my friends. They are my friends, but I don't know them the way I know my friends from 40 years ago. These are the guys who are going to New Media. So I go to New Media. I I go there to have fun, to be with my friends. There's been numerous times where where I've had an awful weekend, and I will go to New Media just with my my pickup truck, my car, to go out to dinner with the guys that are, are racing there. It's friends. You know, the friends that we've made over the years, it's just unbelievable. It it, it really is And To think that we've met people from all over, in some cases, the world. It, it's amazing to think like that. You know, we're not normal. And I say normal in a sense that, in my case anyway, I don't have a, a an eight to five job and work Monday through Friday. You know, that was my parents' life. They were not... While my father was somewhat of a mechanical gearhead type of guy, he wasn't a racer. He worked his eight to five, two weeks vacation a year, so on and so forth. That to me is normal. As racers, we're not normal. If we do have that eight to five, usually come Friday afternoon, when we do get home, it's to load the truck and trailer up and cause, and to drive all night long to go to a race somewhere and we're going to race and, and come Sunday night, win, lose, whatever, we're going to get back in that truck and we're going to drive home because we need to be back home Monday morning for work. Sometimes I don't believe that the powers that be in our sport understand that fully. And, and I think that that sometimes has a, an effect on, on what we end up doing.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good point. I'm uh, I'm curious I want to pull on that thread a little bit more. <laughs> what uh and the simple question, I guess, every we don't live anywhere close to each other, John. We got to be 7 800 miles apart and seemingly when I go racing, you're there either as a competitor or you're covering the event. Like what is your what's your event schedule look like on a regular basis?
1: I mean, last year and we're not done with this year yet, but last year, and I got a calendar hanging on my wall right behind me and, mm-hmm. and I marked what the days I'm away days. I didn't sleep in my own bed. And I don't mean, you know, my motor home is my own bed, but I don't count. When I say my own bed, it's it's my bedroom sure. you know, in the house. But I mean, last year I spent 29 days on the road somewhere. Um, I'm sure you're the same or probably close to it. If you would account. this year, I'm probably looking at, I haven't counted yet, but I mean, I'm probably looking at about the same, but I enjoy it. It's, this is what, you know, and here's the thing, and, and, you know, sometimes I I say, well, I wrote this before. I guess I've wrote a lot of things, so sometimes I'm repeating myself, but, you know, somewhere along the line, they said that if you do what you love, you'll never work in your life. That's not true. It's still a job. It's still work, you know, it, it's fun, it's enjoyable, but it's still work. Do I get up in the morning and go, oh man, I don't really want to go to work today. No, I, I get up in the morning I'm excited to either go into my shop and work or come to the office and and write something or with all due respect to people with feats digging ditches for a living, I enjoy myself, I have a good time you know, or I try to anyway, but it, there's a cost involved in it too. You know, I sometimes think back or I wonder anyway, if 40 years ago, had I had a real job and, and save money and, and, you know, go on a two week vacation a year and would I be any different? And I think to myself, you know what, what would I be doing for fun? This is enjoyable. You know, racing is, is, is fun. I, I don't know what else. I, I play golf. And the problem I have with playing golf is that number one, I feel bad when I'm golfing that I should be working. You know, if it's an 18 hole golf game. It's, it's a four hour a day that I probably think I should be working in a shop. And the second problem I have <laughs> with golf is that I suck at it. So, but, but you got to get away. You, you got to, you got to get away sometimes, but I don't mind working. You know, somebody said to me, my brother, who was a colonel in the Air Force, you know, and he was that normal eight to five guy and, and you know, God bless him. He's not retired now, but he is uh, He's close. He said to me one day, he says, are you going to, when are you going to retire? And I go, I don't even know what that word is. I said, Retire. Oh, wait a minute, I said I do. I put new tires on the trailer last week. That's retiring, isn't it? <laughs> I enjoy working and and I think racing has done that for me it It really has. I don't know where I go from here. I really don't, but I know that i I don't God willing I hope I don't have to retire because we enjoy it, and that's what I think is all about. You know you' got a lot of you got a number of racers today who did very well in life either they own their own business or they invested wisely or they saved wisely and now they're getting into their i
0: don't like
1: to say twilight years maybe i should just call them aarp years but now they're able to go out there and have some fun and they're out there and they're enjoying themselves and that's what racing is all about race is all about going out and having fun and enjoying ourselves i don't know where we go i don't know where it's going but I think that we need to enjoy every day, you know, what do they say? Enjoy every day like it's your last. God willing, I hope it ain't my last.
0: Typically, uh, when we have these conversations on the podcast, we end with a, a little fun rapid-fire segment. I want to change it up just a little bit for you, John, because I, I want to continue to capitalize on this wealth of knowledge and perspective that you have. So, typically, we change these up a lot. I'm going to keep it all racing-related. I've,
1: I've seen, I've seen them. I've heard some of them.
0: <laughs> okay, and I won't limit you to just the the one-word answers. If you want to expand on any, some of them are a little bit more detailed. But first question would be. Uh, If you could, and let's, I guess, let's keep this as a, as a racer, as a competitor yourself, what would be the the Mount Rushmore accomplishments or events to win over maybe the course of your career? Not necessarily that you've won, but if you could put any four events, like what would be the the keynotes to the unbelievable career?
1: I don't know. I don't know that 30 or 40 years ago or whenever I started that I ever thought that I would get to the point I'm at today. I guess if you want to talk at it like a bucket list, you know, we just interviewed Frank Aragona Jr. for our Champions issue, and he said it has always been on his bucket list to win Indy. And he's fortunate enough this year to win Indy, and so he crossed it off his bucket list. I don't have a bucket list. I really don't. I, I mean, I've been fortunate to win races on a lot of different levels, To be inducted in the Hall of Fame, which really makes me feel old. (laughs) But, you know, I, I just, I'm happy doing what I've done. I don't know what that Mount Rushmore would be for me. I really don't. Okay. It's going to take me a whole lot longer than, than this to think of something like that.
0: <laughs> we will write about that next
1: week in my blog.
0: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Providing content. You've had so much success on such a variety of levels within the sport. What's sweeter to taste victory as a, as a racer, as a parent, as a car owner?
1: It's pretty sweet to taste it as a parent. I bet. I've got a picture hanging in my office when my son won his first national event and it's it, me standing on the starting line and I got my arms raised yelling and screaming and ironically Rick Stewart who was the starter at the time were probably five ten feet apart from one another but when the picture was taken it looks like I'm right in his face with screaming and yelling and, and it, it just tasted as a parent is, is pretty cool. My son's been been racing since he was four years old because he started in quarter midgets oh, wow. and he raced quarter midgets until he uh, turned eight and then he wanted to get into drag racing so we got him a junior dragster and he's he's won races in quarter midgets he's won races in junior drag racing he was division champion in junior dragsters and it's pretty sweet to get it at to, to see it as a, as a parent you will you will find that out I
0: have a feeling you're probably right. Favorite event to compete in as a racer? Probably any of the
1: big bracket races, but I don't get the chance to do it because I'm there working.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and I and I always look at it as work comes first. I have to put food on my table. So this is how I do that. And but I think it would be cool. I'd like to race more big events. I really would. I, I think more of the big bracket races. I enjoy bracket racing. I like the The idea of racing all day long, win, lose. Let's say you lose, you're aggravated, you go to sleep, you wake up tomorrow, you're into another race again. You start all over again. Whereas when you go to an NHRA race, a national or divisional, you race all weekend long, you race in one race, you lose Saturday, Sunday, whenever, you're aggravated, you're upset you got to wait until the whole next week before you get the chance to go out there and do it again. The bracket racing is so cool because you lose today, tomorrow you get up, it's all over again. The four- and five-day races, I, I think, would be really cool to race.
0: What about uh, as a journalist? What's your favorite event to cover?
1: The, the big bracket races. Things are happening all the time. I, I enjoy it, and I enjoy being able to give the bracket, I think anyway, or I try to give the bracket race the notoriety that they deserve. I know where they're coming from. I know what they've gone through. I've been that guy who's worked all week long and gotten in my truck on Friday night and have to drive all night long to get through. I, I, More than anything else, and there are probably a lot of other people I feel that know just as much as I do, but I feel like I know what they've gone through. I've been on their side of the fence, and it, 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 it thrills me to be able to. You know, our next our next issue we have Hunter Patton who won the the five hundred thousand dollar race, the spring fling five hundred K race. It thrills me to be able to use him on the centerfold for our next issue. You know, so it thrilled me to be able to use. Oh boy, forgive me, I even forgot who won the, WC- the WFC race for um, great grace, this is Ford oh what was his name? I'd have to look it up, but anyway, it thrills <laughs> me to be able to you know he, here's a guy who almost died last year had a heart attack
0: that's right, yep, okay,
1: had a heart attack at the track. I mean, I spoke to him and, I, and he told me the story, and i 'm amazed I mean here was a guy who was i say dead the rights, but he the rights, you know. And and he came back, and now he's racing, and now he wins. Uh, the same thing the guy who won on Sunday. A decent fr- I'm getting real bad at remembering names When he We need <Jed. laughs> he, uh, he won Sunday's event. You know, and here's another guy who had a heart attack earlier in the year, and he comes back and wins the event. So it thrills me to be able to give those guys the, the notoriety that they get to put their picture up there because I think that a lot of times – you know, I say, what do we race for? Do we race for the trophy or race for the money? Sometimes we're racing for the ego. Yeah. Ego drives a lot of us. You know, NHRA likes to see, or, or we like to see our name in National Dragster. We like to see our name someplace big. We had started another magazine a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and they hired a managing editor for the magazine. The managing editor pretty much, he would just look over your stories of what you were doing and he would make comments one way or the other. But he wasn't a racer, had no racing experience whatsoever. And I had published and wrote the story as it was. It was a race result. And I listed all the names of the people who won. Friday's winner, Saturday's Winner, Runner-Up, so on and so forth. And he said to me, ah, we don't need to put that in there. I said, are you kidding me? No, no, no. We need to put that in there. People want to see their name in print. Or they want to see it online. They want to be able to see it. That's the ego that we're racing for. Nothing wrong with that. It thrills me to be able to do that. I feel fortunate. Thank God, I'm in the position that I'm in, in that I can do that when I can.
0: Yeah, for sure. No, and, and ego gets such a negative connotation, but it's just you know the the amount of of work and sacrifice that goes into just getting there much less having success. Like it is, it's a big deal to get recognized for that when it goes well.
1: And and yeah. And you, I mean, you're right. Ego does get this, you know, we look at it as being bad. It's not, there's yeah. Okay. There's bad ego out there. We know that. But I mean, ego doesn't necessarily mean it has to be negative. Uh, It's just, it's what
0: we do. All right. Last one. And this might be, you may have already answered this to be honest. And you, you, it might,
1: I've answered it. I, Sometimes I think i answered a lot of things. And I, and I go, you know what? I think I said that a long time ago. Or or somebody would ask me a question. And I, and I think back and I go, man, I, I think I said that one time. But I'm getting bad at even remembering that, just like I'm getting bad at remembering a name.
0: <laughs> yeah, a
1: quick, quick story. A guy who really helped me get into racing back when I started. I owe him a lot. Uh, Rich Albertson. But anyway, he had, this is back in uh, probably early 70s. He had two kids, which at the time they were both very young. And we go to, uh, the, probably the last time I saw these kids, they were maybe 11, 12, 13, something. I'm in Pomona two, three years ago, and a guy comes up to me and starts saying, hey, John, how are you? I haven't seen you in a long time. How you been? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking to myself, who is this guy? I have no idea who this guy is. And, and we start talking and talking. And, and what he was saying did not give me a clue as to who he was. Um. So in any event, I I, I thought to myself, I got to get out of here. So I said, well, you know what? I got a meeting to go to. I really need to, to run. So I left. Well, that night, I get a phone call from my friend who got me started in racing. And he's, and and we've talked on and off all the time still to this day. But he calls me up and he says, what's the matter? You don't have time to talk to my kid? Did you kid? when Where did I see your kid? <laughs> he said he talked to you. You were sitting on a golf cart and he said you had a meeting to go to. I go, that was your kid? I said, I ain't seen a kid in 30 years and you expect me to remember what he looked like? <laughs> so, you
0: know, it, that just gets back
1: to... Not remembering things, but go ahead. I, I, I think I got a little <laughs> long on that one.
0: Well, already. if you uh, if if you think that you've probably answered this question before, it's probably because you have. <laughs> <laughs> probably.
1: <laughs> My last question there's for only, you. Is... Only so many qu- There's only so much in his head of mind. I, I, I...
0: <laughs> your, uh, I, I said coolest, but coolest or you, just your favorite racing memory?
1: Racing that first bracket finals at York in 1976. Like, you know, this is before we had wind lights on the finish line. You know, you, you didn't know whether you won or lost. And, and I came up the return road and, and, and I came up and it was a fence on the side of the return road. And as I'm coming up the return road, people are hanging over the fence, clapping and screaming. And I'm thinking, wow, I won. Holy cow. And I remember pulling the car up outside the – the tower and I got out of my car and they wanted me to go in the tower and sign something or do whatever. And I go in the tower and when I come outside, my car is plastered with decals. I have no idea where these decals came from. And, and I, and I looked at the car and I'm like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. And I said to my buddy or one of my friends, I said, where are all these decals? Oh, we were pulling them off other people's cars. and We were just putting them on your car contingency and i'm like oh my god Uh, we also got a case of champagne that night and it's all gone except for one bottle which i still have because when i brought it home my mother taped the copy of the check to the bottle and i still have that bottle sitting on my on my trophy shelf and that was a cool that was a cool night now flash forward to this year at Norwalk, the Norwalk national event, and I win super stock. Again, whatever reason, no wind lights on the finish line. Oh. I have no idea if they were broke or whatever, but every round, and everybody kept saying, hey, it's no wind lights down there. You had to come up the return road, and you're coming up the return road, and there's a fence on the side of the return road, and people are hanging up, and I'm not knowing whether I want to watch People <laughs> are hanging over the fence and clapping and screaming, and. and I mean it that to me likened back to 1976.
0: Maybe. Wow. Talk about bringing it full circle, huh?
1: It it really it, it really did.
0: It, it was just it was a cool time,
1: you know. We we used to have a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I don't know that, I don't know that we still have as much fun. We look for it, but but it gets back to having fun.
0: John, uh, thank you for your time and, and insights here on the podcast and just and congratulations on your body of work as a whole and just and thank you for all that you've done for Forget the Podcast, for all that you've done for drag racing in general, man. It's an honor to have you on.
1: Well, it's it's believe me, it's, it's I'm very humbled by by you and everyone else to be able to do what I do. It's it's very cool to you know, walk up through the staging lanes or walk through the pits and have people that you don't even know come up to you and tell you what a good job you do. And we don't always I know I sometimes don't always look at it like that, but uh but it's very humbling. It really is. You know, I when they inducted me into the Division One Hall of Fame, I, I was shocked. I, I didn't I mean I'd I never looked at myself as being maybe because I've been around so long <laughs> That's why, but I never thought that, as I said to you, I mean, I never thought back in the 70s when I started racing that that I would ever get to the point I'm at today. I'm not even sure that I would, that I, that I would have even thought that I'd be married to my wife God and have two kids and, and now a grandchild and, and you know, what? so I don't know. I don't know. I guess I didn't have that ball back then. Still don't.
0: No, none of us do.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me on. I I appreciate it. I, I enjoyed talking with you, and I, and I hope that I made a little bit of sense anyway.
0: Absolutely. Uh, that brings me. I, I should have brought this up earlier, but uh, easiest place for our listeners to find you:
1: DragRacingEdge.com. dot in, com. In in the last couple of weeks, you can also subscribe to the print issues, fix issues twenty four ninety five, and and our website has a lot of not the same content. But that are we use our website to have timely content. Mm-hmm. The stuff that we put in the magazine, obviously, you can understand, gets printed now, and it doesn't get distributed for another two months or whatever. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the website we use for just timely news, and they can, you can subscribe online. And, and truthfully, in the last couple of weeks, we've we've really done well with subscribers. so... Um, Another thing that I'm for the Thanksgiving.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, no. And to listeners, if you haven't already, the weekly blog is uh, is a good read. Uh, always, always insightful, oftentimes fun and humorous, but uh, definitely on my on my checklist every week. So if you don't already uh, check that out, be sure to uh, be sure to do so. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on, man. I'll be Let's take just a minute to discuss motorsports insurance, specifically Larisse Motorsports Insurance. If you're anything like me, you know of someone, uh, whether it's a friend, someone within your racing family that has lost everything, whether that be through everything racing related, whether that be via fire or theft, highway accident, on-track accident. And if you're anything like me, You've also realized that you have a significant portion of your net worth tied up in your racing equipment, maybe more than we would like to admit, right? This is, after all, our passion, and it can become a bit of a money pit. What you may not know is that there are options to ensure your racing equipment, race cars, trailers, support equipment both on the track and off, and that doing so is not as costly as you might expect. To do that for me personally, I chose... Larisse Motorsports Insurance. They're a great company offering an excellent product and they stand behind it. Now I've been so impressed with Larisse and their commitment to excellence in this regard that we've partnered with them through thisisbracketracing.com. Our own team member Ashley Thompson is a licensed broker for Larisse Motorsports Insurance. If this is something that you would entertain, that you would like to know more about, and or get a quote for your particular application, contact us. Go to thisisbracketracing.com slash get a quote, and Ashley will get back in touch with you. Again, that is thisisbracketracing.com slash get a quote. Do you want to become a better racer? Are you interested in expanding your knowledge of our sport? If so, ThisIsBracketRacing.com is is the place for you. ThisIsBracketRacing.com houses well over 300 training resources on literally every topic that you could imagine as it pertains to sportsman drag racing. We have trainings dedicated toward improving reaction time, toward uh, sharpening your skills at the finish line, toward increasing your mental game, uh, tech, and torque converter carburetors you name it and much much more best of all on your first visit to thisisbracketracing.com we award you with one training of your choice for free again that's the best part it is your choice so whatever it is that you are interested in and want to focus on we have a training for you it's yours for free To check it out, just go to thisisbracketracing.com and click the Start Here button on the homepage.